on last year's Heartland. The American neurobiologist and author Robert Sapolsky met with Danish author and science journalist Lone Frank. In front of a live audience in the festival's Future Talks tent, the two participants discussed the future of human nature. Future Talks were created to invite scientists and theorists into the public conversation and to make us all take an interest in the future. In this case, the future of our kind and the way we live our lives. Robert Sapolsky works at Stanford University, where he does his research in neurobiology. In 2017, he published the book Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. The book is his attempt to answer the question of why we humans behave the way we do. Lone Frank has a background in neuroscience and is considered one of Denmark's very best science journalists. She is the author of several books that have been translated into many languages and read worldwide. We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Heartland Podcast. century, the army began a top-secret experiment. Meet Joe Bowers, our first subject for the human hibernation experiment. As you know, this is highly classified. However, if successful, we believe humans can be stored indefinitely. However, the trial run was prone to human error. See you in a year. And Joe slept slightly longer than expected. Half a millennium, to be exact. From Mike Judge, creator of Office Space and Beavis and Butthead. Oh my God! If you were the smartest person in the world... This one's in your mouth. This one goes in your butt. Hang on a second. This one, this one goes in your mouth. And we're stuck with the dumbest people in history. If you have one bucket that holds two gallons, and another bucket that holds five gallons, how many buckets do you have? Two? What would you do? Excuse me, um, I'm actually supposed to be getting out of prison. You're in the wrong line. I'm the smartest guy in the world? Says who? The IQ test you took in prison. You got the highest score in history. Even smarter than President Camacho. We got this guy. He's gonna fix everything. So you smart. The ordinary will be considered extraordinary. I thought your hair would be bigger. Idiocracy. For the smartest guy in the world, you're pretty dumb sometimes. Well, after this, uh, welcome to everybody and welcome to you, <laughs> Robert Sapolsky. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, thanks. Um, I remember, I think I heard about you the first time maybe 15 years ago. had to do with baboons and stress. And uh, I recently found out that there is actually a website out there called robertsapolskyrocks.com. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so, so more people me. than me are, are excited. Um, we started out with this clip um, from the film Idiocracy. Uh, and as it t- turns out here in the film, it's not that human evolution um, has gone a, a, a good way. It's, it's not been a positive evolution in some ways in this film. And of course, our topic for today is what is the future of human evolution? And many people will say to themselves, well, evolution is, is a process that sort of, it, it has a direction, it, it goes toward 
bigger, better, smarter something. But as this clip shows, <laughs> it, could, it could go in other directions. How does evolution work? Well, I think the first thing implicit in that horrifying film clip um, is evolution is still happening. There, there's a bit of a set of myths of the end of history has occurred, the end of evolution has occurred. Evolution is still going on, and evolution is still subject to all the usual myths that there are about it. First one, that evolution is directional, that we are being meant to evolve in a particular direction, that we are evolving in a direction that's going to make us more adapted to things than we are now. What evolution is about is adapting to whatever the current circumstances are. And in that regard, another thing that evolution cannot do is be pre-adapted, planning for the future. Um, birds, as far as anyone could tell, they first evolved feathers for regulating body temperature, and then somewhere along the way, like some bird suddenly discovered that in fact it's a good way to jump in the air, and feathers did not evolve for flight. They were pre-adapted not for that, they were adapted for thermoregulation. So all of this points to some sort of... So actually, they were meant to be put into uh, to covers, to yeah. base. Exactly. That's, and pillows. That's what they evolved yeah. for. Yeah. And, and jackets. For yeah. American Thanksgiving dinners and things of that sort. <laughs> Isn't evolution wonderful? Um, what, what you see, though, in terms of, well, obviously evolution is still going to be happening with us. What are some of the obvious sort of directions of evolution for us in the coming years, centuries? Uh, there's going to be a big advantage to people who are resistant to skin cancer as the sun gets hotter and temperatures get hotter. There's going to be selection for people who are resistant to all the bacteria that are becoming resistant to our antibiotics. We, we may soon be back in the medieval situation where a scraped knee can be fatal uh, to a subset of people. Um, and that in and of itself is a wonderful example. We are not beyond the possibility of being done in by single-cell bacteria big, fancy, multicellular organisms are not necessarily better evolved than simple ones. Evolution mm. is not about getting more complicated. Evolution is about running faster and faster to stay in the same place, to deal with, uh, with whatever the current pressures are. But would that tell us that with, uh, you know, the more technology we have, uh, the better we are at treating diseases and uh, so on and so forth, we don't actually, there aren't selection pressures towards, you know, being smarter or being more resistant to, let's say, getting diabetes. Because if you can get it treated, I mean, that doesn't mean anything for whether you have children or not, because you're going to survive to childbearing age. Yes. But we might get weaker and dumber. Um. At least we'll get different. Um, I mean, clearly, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit optimistic here. I mean, this is such a nice place, um, and most of what I have to say is so depressing. Um, I mean, we see that evolution, like, for example, if it was 10,000 years ago, I would not have made it to reproductive age because I would have been squashed by some large mammal at some point because this wouldn't have existed yet, and I would have thought it was a large rock or something that was sort of strangely menacing. Um, 
all sorts of ways that this is happening. What you see, though, is evolution keeps slipping in the back door. Mm. Um, for example, a phenomenon that's well recognized by now throughout the 20th century, you take populations that are getting their first exposure to westernized diet. <clears throat> and this has mostly been people in the developing world, indigenous populations, uh, oceanic populations in the Pacific get exposed to westernized diets when colonial powers come in for the first time, whatever. And what do you know, within one or two generations, 90% of the population has diabetes by age 30. Hmm. And this has been incredibly well studied. There's a Native American uh, tribe in both America and Mexico called the Pima Indians. Half of them live in the United States, half in Mexico. You could not have done a better laboratory experiment with lab rats. The Mexican side has a much more traditional diet. This side eats nothing but McDonald's. And this side is suddenly dropping dead of diabetes-related diseases by age 40 or so. You suddenly see this catastrophic selection. Oh my God, a westernized diet. And this has been seen over and over. And then what you also see is by three or four generations into it, the diabetes rate begins to come down. The people who are most resistant to diabetes are making it to 60 instead of 40. Mm -hmm. And they have some more kids survive or they leave more money for their grandkids or some such thing. And within a century, you could see this evolutionary curve beginning to happen. And this has been seen over and over. Evolution is still occurring unexpected ways, though. Interesting. Uh, is there agreement among uh, evolutionary biologists on this, uh, this topic? Are there many different guesses of where could we be going? with the human population. Yeah, I guess it's mostly a function of whether people are optimists or pessimists or not in terms of what, what models and what assumptions they make. Um, you know, in terms of where we're heading, it's clear we're going to be more urbanized, we're going to be more anonymous, we're going to have to be more constrained by the rules of large social groups instead of small bands. And that's a very different sort of human life than mm. we've spent 99% of our hominid history in. And that pulls out very different behaviors and very different selective pressures. I'm wondering whether uh, we have a lot of discussion these days in most societies about the rates of mental illness. Why does everybody have depression, anxiety, OCD, autism, whatever? And I would imagine that maybe some of it has to do with population density and living in very large social groups, not like our ancestral populations, you know, with smaller groups, but, but very large societies where you meet and interact with strangers all the time. And where, on a certain level, I mean, some of my research has been sort of related to the neurobiology of depression and sort of, in a sense, if you study depression, what supposedly is, what you're trying to understand is, why is it that 15% of us succumb to major depression at some point in our lives? What's the genetics? What's the biochemistry? All of that. In a much more fundamental way, the much more important question is to understand how it is that 85% of us don't get depressed. Um, oh, great. You actually paid money to listen to this here today? Um, it strikes me that's the much more pertinent thing because of, look, we're a smart primate. 
we know we're going to die. We know that everybody we love is going to die. We know that like, oh my God, you're sitting there going to sleep and your heart is beating nice and slow. And you know that someday your heart is gonna stop beating and like your blood is gonna congeal in your toes. And we're smart enough to do that stuff. And it seems clear one of the things that had to evolve with human capacity for cognition, for abstracting over space and time into the future, all of that, is us having to evolve a spectacular capacity to deceive ourselves and to ignore reality mm. and to rationalize away and we're really good at it. I mean, every one of us knows what we're supposed to be doing to be living a better life, and we're all going to do it starting tomorrow, absolutely tomorrow. We're very good at doing that. We do all sorts of cognitively distortive things to make scary things go away, and I think on a certain level, that is what allows us as a species to have evolved with the knowledge that we have of what comes the downside, nonetheless, is astronomically high rates of types of mental illness. Yeah. So it's basically, it's, it's the price we pay for the brains that we have and the cognition that we have. Yep, absolutely. Mm. And in that regard, I've, I've heard depression very aptly defined as it's a disease of a failure of rationalization. No, no, no. It's you, the opposite. You look at reality yeah. far too frankly, in the face. It's, it's called depressive realism. Yes. It's what I have, basically. <laughs> but, Way to go. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> You're involved. But, yes. But, but talking about uh, cognition and, and evolution, um, the whole field of evolutionary psychology um, is, is an interesting one because often when, when you talk about... Uh, the way we look at things, the way we treat each other, uh, the way we think about things, and so on and so forth. Many people have difficulties when you say, well, there are, you know, there are psychological traits that are shaped by evolution, you know, uh, through millions of years, and, you know, when we just became modern man, and so on and so forth. Um, how much could we say is sort of, I mean, I don't like the, the discussion where, where you say either, oh, we have these Stone Age brains, so we're not really equipped to deal with modern media or, or whatever it is. It, obviously, we are. I mean, these Stone Age brains are working quite well in, in all sorts of, uh, of circumstances. But um, how shaped are we in our cognition and our emotional life by, by evolution? Give us some good examples. Enormously, and in some ways, <clears throat> sort of flipping your idea, I think one of our biggest problems is that we still have Stone Age bodies amid yeah. minds that are not more Stone Age. And sort of the best way to appreciate that is to consider stress and stress-related disease. And when you look at westernized populations, most of us are going to die of a disease that is worsened by stress. We're not going to die of the plague or, you know, locusts eating our crops. They're stress-related diseases. And a way of defining stress in a westernized sense is when we have a very modern perception of something being stressful, in other words, something that is psychologically stressful, that is psychosocially stressful, 
or defined in another way, a way in which if you sit down a hippo and try to describe to that hippo what it is you're upset about, it would have no idea what you're talking about. And the critical thing is, when we get upset for those reasons, we do the exact same thing with our bodies as would a zebra running away from a lion or a lion running after a zebra. And we just do it with thoughts, with emotions, with memories, and that makes no sense to any other animal on Earth. The body's stress response is mobilized to deal with a physical crisis right now. And instead, you're sitting and you're watching a movie and you're feeling terrible about some fictional character and your blood pressure increases. This makes no sense evolutionarily. We have, if anything, very modern psyches and very ancient mammalian bodies going along with it. But that means uh, with the psyche that can you know, uh, accrue all this knowledge about ourselves and about our biological mechanisms, that ought to be a psyche that's really poised to, you know, go against all these mechanisms. I mean, metacognition. You know, think about when you actually feel stressed out. We know that you can direct the stress um, response in a very, very negative way. That is sort of the, the shutdown kind of, oh, I'm just going to sit here. I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to handle this, it's, it's awful. Or you can go the sort of more positive way as, oh, this is a challenge, I'm going I'm to do this. And that appears to be there is a difference. And if you tell people, you know, stress is not that bad for you, you if you direct the stress response in a certain way instead of a, a different way, it's, it's actually going to help you cope. If you prime people with that message, show them a little video, you can see that they actually handle stress much better. And, and I think your whole book, Behave, which is, you know, uh, this where you unfold, you know, behaviors all the way back to millions of years ago and uh, evolution and culture and, and neurobiology and endocrinology and so on and so forth. It, if we have all this knowledge about what our inner processes are and what they lead to, I suppose we can change things. We can Sometimes. act in a different way. We can think in a different way. Sometimes. Um, you know, there is a whole world of stress resilience. People in the stress business love the word resilience these days. Built around, you take some vast number of people, come out of a concentration camp, or come out of some terrible, poverty, stricken, violent neighborhood, and most of them are messes, and one out of a thousand or one out of a hundred come out just fine. Come out, oh my God, what is it about them? Everyone is interested in stress resilience these days. And what is clear in most of the cases is, if it's the right amount of stress, it's wonderful. I mean, stress is not, the, the purpose of studying stress is not to get rid of stress from our lives. We, we like stress when it's the right kind. We pay good money for it. I, I spent yesterday screaming my head off on some scary ride in Tivoli Garden, and we, we paid money to do this. And, like, this is stressful. And it's not that we hate stress. We like the right kind. And when it's the right kind, we call it stimulation. And whether you are a child developmental psychologist or do geriatrics or everything in between, the goal is not to get rid of stress. When it's the right kind, it's stimulation. What's the right kind? It's not too severe. It doesn't last for too long. 
and the overall setting feels safe. And what is that? That's what play is. When we play, we are in a setting that feels safe and we are willing to give up control and predictability and saying, surprise me, when you get on a roller coaster, you think maybe you'll feel a little bit nauseous afterward. Not that your head will be cut off in an accident. When you get on a roller coaster, it's for three minutes, not for three weeks. It's moderately stressful, it's not for too long, and you know overall it's safe. The people in Tivoli Gardens are probably not gonna lead you off to some sort of camp afterward and not let you out. Um, <laughs> probably not. They, they seemed mostly benign. Um, one person <laughs> yelled at us about something, but other than that, um, and in those settings, it's what we love stress when it's the right amount. And we grow from that sort of stress. But the whole notion of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, growing from stress, all of that, for the most part, that's the luxury of those of us who are privileged. That's the luxury of us who have our stressors because we're neurotic and middle class and can afford to be worried about stuff that not only would make no sense to a zebra, but would make no sense to a refugee or a homeless person or things like that. For people like that, there's no such thing as growing from adversity from the right amount of stress. All it does is push you down. Stress is an amazing way of separating the lucky from the unlucky, making it even more exaggerated. Yeah, but that tells me that what we should be saying to that, you know, well-fed, well-educated, neurotic middle class is whenever you feel stressed about something that has to do with your ambitions, your whatever it is, sit back and think a hippo would find you ridiculous. Yes, and as over. would a very poor person. Yes, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but... <sighs> Let's, I think, let's get into, we are supposed to talk about the future of human evolution. It's difficult to say exactly where genetic evolution is going, but on, in the shorter term, what's more interesting is, is can, we, can we evolve morally, I suppose? Can we evolve cognitively? Um, not because our brains become different because of genetics, but because when we know more about them, uh, can we start thinking differently? Can we start behaving differently um, in, in society in general? And, and what is your take on that? Well, let's see, this is where I get really depressing. Um, <laughs> overall, and if you, if you study enough history and go to enough castles on enough delightful Danish islands and all of that, one of the things that comes through is it sucked to be a human 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was awful. And people like Harvard, Steven Pinker, very influential book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, has documented the extent to which this is a much, much more humane planet than 500 years ago. And this has been the case throughout. 200 years ago, slavery was widespread, child labor, the notion of animal humane laws was ludicrous. And today, every country on earth has banned slavery. There are still millions of slaves, and there's lip service to it. Nonetheless, it's better than 500 years ago. It's burning of widows, there's less of it. Literacy has gotten better. By a rough majority, uh, most people on this planet choose their governments. They choose 
the mediocre and the wealthy and the bullies and all of that, but nonetheless, you know, there's lots of grounds for optimism. And where that optimism has come from is extending empathy in directions that never used to be the case. <clears throat> so basically the moral circle is expanding. Exactly. Yeah. And it's very easy to be cynical about that, but nonetheless, the last century saw us inventing international laws that there's certain ways you can't kill people. It invented international laws for how you could send food aid to people on the other side of the planet who have suffered from an earthquake. There are laws for how you can adopt an orphan from the other side. All of these are totally brand new. And the trouble is, whatever is the most painful, outrageous, awful thing being done to a human on Earth at any given point hurts as much as the most outrageous thing 500 years ago would have. So it still hurts as much, and it still feels like it is as awful and heartless of a world. But nonetheless, it is within a backdrop of things are getting better. We are extending empathy in directions nobody ever used to think about before. And some of that is driven by biology. But then you're sort of extrapolating and saying that that might just be, you know, getting better and better, more and more empathetic. Aren't we seeing, um, for example, in the rise of nationalism, uh, in the rise of certain kinds of conflicts and terrorism where, where you would say, wow, that's, that's really not going in the right direction. Um, how do you see that? Is, is that just a blip on the curve on the way to a, a much better world? Or could we, as with evolution, be on a downturn? Well, it really does depend on your perspective. If you sit there and you read a book that's considering the last five, 500 years, uh, the word blip does come to mind. Mm. If you sit there and you read the news, it's horrifying. Um, and I think what we're seeing now, this rise of nationalism, is part of the shakeout. People always talk about globalization. We're also dealing with this revolutionary transition that most people will have areas of skill that are going to be totally obsolete because of artificial intelligence, things of that sort. And we're seeing the crisis of what's it going to do to us when most of us are irrelevant. And I think one of the things we've seen is that when people are feeling irrelevant culturally, they tend to vote in governments that say, we are the best and they are the causes of our problems and let's do something about it. And I think this is a lot of where the nationalism is coming from. So long as we're talking about this, let me take this moment. I would like to apologize for everything the president of my country has ever said <laughs> or done or thought or... It's horrible. Um, we, we, we are living in an occupied country right now. This is not our nation. And we're all considering requesting asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for the next few years. But, but a thing like nationalism is, I would say, deeply, deeply ingrained. It's very easy for us as humans to go in that direction mentally because of evolution and because the way we're hardwired. Well, I think this is one of the more <laughs> unnerving pieces of all of this. Mm. What you sort of bring us to with that question is our tendency 
as humans, as primates, as social mammals, to divide the world into us and them. Yeah. And this is a horrifying tendency. Um, if there are few things in us that are hardwired in a sense of being inevitable, I think one of the inevitabilities is us tending to divide the world into in-groups and out-groups and to us to think the in-groups are a whole lot nicer and come up with better folk music and are nicer to their children and any other version <laughs> of this nonsense you would want to have. It is a very, very deep fracture line in our brains. And the evidence for that comes in lots of ways. We, you know, virtually every other primate species does us theming in similar sorts of ways. Flash up, put somebody in a brain scanner and flash up pictures for a tenth of a second, flashing up familiar faces in group members, and then in there flash up the face of an out-group member, and in under one-tenth of a second, 70 to 80 milliseconds, there's activation of the part of the brain called the amygdala, which is about fear and aggression. There's activation of a part of the brain having to do with disgust, that in most other mammals tells you you've eaten a disgusting piece of food. In us, it also tells you this is someone who makes me feel disgusted. There's less activation in a part of the cortex that differentiates faces from each other. They don't even count as looking as much as having faces as we do. It is incredibly automatic. It is there in children by the time they're eight, nine months, year of age. Mm. It is universal. It is implicit. It is incredibly hard to combat. Various hormones work to make it even more extreme. One hormone, for example, everybody, there's, if, you, if you like endocrinology, the most wonderful hormone on, on earth is oxytocin. Oxytocin is this hormone, it's great. It promotes pro-sociality. If, if you give oxytocin to houseflies, they become better listeners, they learn how to play folk guitar, things like that. They go to anti-war rallies. Oxytocin makes you more expressive. It promotes mother-infant bonding, it promotes pair bonding, it promotes trust. Turns out that's not what oxytocin does. When you study it more closely, this is some wonderful work coming out of the Netherlands. This will be very pertinent, the work that's been done. Okay, a work by someone named Karsten de Drew in the Netherlands, wonderful work. You give somebody a classic problem in philosophy, something called the runaway trolley problem. Oh yeah. A trolley is broken loose, it's hurtling down the tracks, it's gonna hit five people and kill them, and you have to decide, is it okay to push somebody onto the track, they'll fall, They'll be hit by the trolley, they're gonna be killed, but it will stop the trolley. Is it okay to sacrifice one to save five utilitarian philosophy? And you get totally different answers from people depending on how you word the question. Okay, so what they did in this study was they took a bunch of like freshman psychology majors at some university in Amsterdam, and they gave them the runaway trolley problem, and what they did was they gave a name to the person you had to decide whether or not to push onto the tracks. Third of the time, the name was apparently some good old boy Dutch name like Dirk or Peter or something <laughs> like that. And the rest of the time, it was names from one of the two groups that consistently have negative associations in the Netherlands. German names, oh right, World War II, that happened, or Muslim names. 
And now you're contemplating this subject deciding, would you push Dirk onto the track? Would you push Otto onto the track? How about Ahmed? And what they did in that study was they gave people oxytocin. And when you give them oxytocin, they're much more likely to save the life of old Dirk or Peter, and they're jumping out of their seats to push, you know, Mahmoud or Wolfgang onto the tracks there. It doesn't make you nicer, it makes you nicer to people who are like you. It makes you more hostile to outgroup. A hormone takes this fracture line between us and them and our brains and makes it more exaggerated. So when you look at it, it is incredibly depressing how firm us-them dichotomizing is as a species. But then I guess the question is, how big a moderator of this is, is culture? It's everything. Can, yeah, but can you actually, with culture and with upbringing... I mean, you, you can't take the us and them out of everyone, is exactly. what you're saying. So what can you do with culture? Well, what you see is, I think it is virtually inevitable that we divide the world into us's and thems, but we are so easily manipulated as to who counts as an us or who counts as a them. And part of it is that we all carry us-them categories, multiple ones in our heads which means in some circumstances, that person is a them, in other circumstances, they're an us. Great example of this. This is one of these studies where you put people in brain scanners, flash up paces, and what was done, this was done in the United States and with white subjects, and if you flash up the face of someone who's African-American for one-tenth of a second, in your average subject, the amygdala activates. Oh my God, this is so depressing, and this is regardless of how much that person would tell you, they are not prejudiced, they are for racial equality, all of that, and most people in under a tenth of a second and, oh my God, this is inevitable, this is so awful. Now you do the experiment in a different way. You take that person, they're from New York City, and there's the New York baseball team. I had to read up about this to find out anything about baseball, but there's a baseball team in New York called the Yankees, and they have some <laughs> team in Boston that they don't like. And now you flash up the pictures, and each face is either wearing a cap for the New York baseball team or the Boston baseball team. And if the person in that brain scanner is enough of a New York baseball fan, when they flash it up in under a tenth of a second, the amygdala activates for the baseball cap for the other team. It's not looking at skin color anymore. All you need is a base. As far as I know, baseball was invented in less than the last thousand years or two or so. It's not that ancient. All it takes is that cultural thing. Yeah, but but and all, it totally all that all that tells it. us is really that we yes we operate with different kinds of in groups and out groups all the time. It could be oh both of us have glasses. We're we're an us. I mean there are some them's out there, um, but it, it that experiment does not tell us that we can say bring up the next generation to not be so easily fooled and manipulated. Exactly. Um, because implicit in, it is very easy to get us to change which us-them category counts as most important, mm. is to do something that every good demagogue and every good dictator understands intuitively, which is how to make the weakest out-group out there mm. seem like the them that is responsible for all the problems. And every good, you know, 
Stalin and Hitler and Idi Amin and all of those folks were brilliant neuroscientists at understanding exactly how this works. What it means is with some awareness of this, we can hopefully get benign us, them categories. Okay, all of us dislike people from the house of Slytherin or something like that. And we all like people who are like Harry's house and that, okay, maybe that's the us, them category we have to have in our heads. But the fact that we are more easily manipulated, if you are a hamster, if you are a rodent, you know who a them is. A them is someone who genetically smells differently enough from you that they are not a relative who you cooperate with. With us, it is so easy to convince us who is a them, and it could be a them who up to last year was a neighbor we lived perfectly well with. That's the danger. It could get pushed in both directions for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we should turn to the better angels of our nature. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> for, for a while. Um, because it, it, it's interesting when, when you look back, you know, human people, or people have always said, you know, I believe in the, you know, the people are not born bad or, you know, they're not born like this or they are born like this. We are born with all these potentials for, you know, doing the worst kinds of things to each other or doing the best kinds of things. So talking about empathy and the way that we can stretch empathy to all sorts of groups and to other species and, and to people we don't even know. I mean, that's, that's very uniquely human. It's wonderful. I mean, every now and then you get some human kid falls into a zoo enclosure and some wonderful gorilla comes and like carries the kid over to the zookeepers. Yes, we're not the only species with empathy. Scientists like Franz Duval, this wonderful Dutch-American scientist who studies chimps and bonobos, has shown we're not the only species with empathy. There's yeah. rudiments of a sense of justice and other species. But yeah, we could do it in ways like nobody else out there. Um, you sit there and you read about, you know, the eruption in Pompeii and the the sort of where they have to fill in where this, the bodies were petrified from the lava of somebody sheltering their child and you sit about how terrified that must have been for them. And that was 2,000 years ago. We could do that for people on the other side. We can do that hearing about the last dodo bird on earth before it went extinct and you could feel pain by that. Yeah, we feel empathy in utterly bizarre ways by animal standards and that could be a very good thing. Or it could be a very bad thing. Pathological empathy? Pathological empathy, where you feel the pains of the world so much that it is incapacitating. That, in some ways, is another definition of what depression is. Um, a very interesting part of the brain called the anterior cingulate. Take your finger and somebody pokes it with a pin, and the parts of your brain that tell you, ooh, that was my finger and not my toe, they activate. The parts of your brain that say that was a sharp pain, that was not a rough pain, activate as well. You also get activation in a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate that tells you something about what that pain means. Now you do the experiment differently. Sit you down and don't poke your finger with a pin. Poke the finger of someone you love. The part of your brain saying it was my finger, not my toe, it doesn't activate. The brain region that says it was a sharp pain, not a rough pain, that doesn't activate. The anterior cingulate activates. It feels someone else's pain. Mm -hmm. 
It's a part of the brain that activates for a neuron in the anterior cingulate. It cannot tell the difference between you are in pain or a loved one is in pain. So what's interesting about the anterior cingulate is in people with major depression, the anterior cingulate is overactive. You are feeling the pains of everything. And one of the most radical surgical things that could be done for severe, severe depression... Deep brain every stimulation. Drug, deep brain stimulation, or if that doesn't work, you can go one step further, and this is after every drug, every type of therapy, electroconvulsive therapy have been tried, you go in and you surgically disconnect the anterior cingulate from the rest of the brain and people feel better at this point. This is maybe 10 cases a year in the United States. This is like beyond incapacitating depression, but it tells you a pathological excess of empathy can be fairly incapacitating. Well, you could also say that if, if you apply your empathy, <laughs> you could apply your empathy in a way where you actually do more bad than good because you get completely focused on I want to save this, you know, one type of whale. So, you know, um, and you, you end up harming all sorts of other creatures or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it becomes very specialized, very parochial. We are very good at feeling empathy for someone who is near us locally, who looks like us, who has experienced the pain that we've experienced. And it takes a lot of work to feel empathy for the other types. One, one example of this, you know, in the United States, there's this endless problem of white cops shooting African-American men who are unarmed and where the cop afterward will swear he was holding a gun, he was holding his cell phone, he was, and where this is like a regular problem. And I know someone who went in and did some empathy training with a police force and empathy for trying to understand where the hostility... And the result was these police felt more empathy afterward. They felt more empathy for fellow police officers who were accused of shooting somebody who was unarmed. <laughs> oh, okay, how much did they pay that guy for that, for that training? Yeah, it could bounce in certain directions. Another feature of that is this interesting divide between empathy feeling somebody else's pain, and compassion, actually acting on it. Hmm. And it turns out feeling a lot of empathy has absolutely zero predictability as to whether you are going to be the one who actually goes and does something about it. Are you the one who's going to run into the burning building to save hmm. the child? Are you the one? And it turns out there's a huge disconnect between so the it, two. So it's not actually the emotion that does it. It's, it's the cognition it's the cognition and it's the automaticity. Mm. Because what you see, two fascinating findings. When you study the people who, 50 people were standing there screaming, oh my God, the poor child fell into the river and this is the person who jumped in, this is the person who ran into the building, a tremendous number of studies of that. This is the person who got the person out of Denmark to Sweden before the Nazis came in and put their life at risk. All these versions of that, there's been a lot of studies of these. These are not people who are more religious, have more of a history of compassionate acts, this or that. You interview those people afterward and you say, what were you thinking when you ran into that burning building? Nothing. Nothing. Wasn't thinking. They always have, before I knew what I was doing, I had run into the building. It's not a cognition, it's making it as automatic 
as a reflex and wonderful work that's been done, a, a neurobiologist at Harvard named Josh Green, who's done these studies, people in brain scanners, when they have opportunities to cheat during a test, and there's various opportunities, and they don't know that you know that they're cheating, and you can see what's happening in the brain when they either cheat or choose not to cheat. And what you see with the people who cheat even once, but at any of these opportunities, it's a very clever design where people are told, oh, the computer just screwed up, so you'll have to tell me afterward if you guessed the right answer. Oh, here's my chance to lie. And you could then tell statistically if suddenly somebody starts doing much better than 50%, aha, they're cheating, you can detect that. So you look at the people who cheated even once or cheated every single time, what's going on in their brain? Their frontal cortex activates like crazy. Your frontal cortex, it's about resisting temptation and impulse control and emotional regulation. And they're struggling, should I do it, should I not do it? I did it, I got away with it, what an idiot I am that I didn't do it last time. They're just going. And then you look at the people who never cheated even once. And literally in the paper, this journal Nature, which is the most prestigious journal on earth, they published it in, they even used these words in the title, is it a function of grace or will? Is it a function of willpower? You never ever cheated because you've got the strongest frontal cortex on earth and your frontal neurons wrestled Satan down before <laughs> he could convince you to do anything awful? Or was it a state of grace? Grace where it wasn't a temptation. And what he saw was the people who never ever cheated, their frontal cortex was in a coma the entire time. It's not that you understand, what if everyone did this and the social contract would fall apart and reciprocity and what if the lawlessness and unforeseen implications and rippling all of that and utilitarian versus deontology, just say, no, it was, you don't do that. So, I didn't so even then, think Then the question it. becomes how, how do you end up a person like that? Is that, how much of that is genetic? How much of that is your upbringing? Uh, what is the difference between these people? It's heavily upbringing. Hmm. What the studies show is if you were brought up in a setting where doing the right thing becomes the automatic thing, where it is simply a moral imperative, we do that. But that's interesting because if you go to the Bible Belt in the US, you will be brought up to do the right thing. But I wouldn't probably call what they call the right thing, the right thing. Yes, of course. It's value-laden mm. as to what counts the right thing. And, you know, those guys who flew those planes into the World Trade Center in New York, those last 10 seconds must have been pretty damn scary. And it is not something appalling to say that they loved their children if they had children. You know, we, we all have different versions of what counts as the right thing and the hard thing to do, and it's very culture specific, but within any given culture, you see, we don't think our ways towards doing the most amazing, wonderful things. We, we have it have become automatic, implicit, and that's a lot harder. That's a lot harder to bring about. But I think what, what you're saying is also that if, if you want to get out of one kind of thinking or one kind of, of, of you know, being automatic, uh, what kind of just acting in this way or, or another way. You have, to, you have to change your brain. You have to actually 
get another habit in there, and that takes a lot of cognition, I get. I mean, getting out of a, of a religious cult, or um, as yourself, I mean, you were brought up in a religious household, uh, and I think it's, you know, in your teenage years, you became an atheist. That must have um, demanded a lot of cognition, a lot of thinking. Well, mostly it was to irritate my parents, but, um, <laughs> but once I got past that point, it became very... Well, that's an automatic like, response. I know. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. and it worked wonderfully. Um, <laughs> what you wind up seeing is this, this, this issue of change begins to tap into this issue that moral philosophers have had to have this revolution about in recent years. And that what most of moral philosophy has been about for centuries has been how do we make a moral decision? We think our way to our moral beliefs. And what has been challenged more and more by neurobiologists, by psychologists, by experimental philosophers and such is, we don't think our way to our moral decisions, we feel our way towards them most of the time. And then we rationalize and them and tell ourselves this was the right thing to Absolutely. do. And one way of showing that is when you emotionally manipulate somebody and they come up with a different moral decision. And then they explain afterward why that one makes tremendous amount of sense or brain imaging studies, you give somebody uh, a runaway trolley problem, any sort of moral decision-making, and you can tell from activity in the brain what decision the person is going to make. You can tell by looking in the emotional part of the brain a few seconds before you look in the cortex. The emotions tend to decide first, and the cortex comes afterward with why it actually all makes sense. And we know this divide between the emotional and the cognitive when you have somebody sitting there saying, I, I can't quite tell you why, but when they do that, that's wrong. That's just, I've just thought of why it's wrong. Here's why it's wrong. That's being driven by emotions, by fear, by anxiety, by disgust, by fear of novelty, by fear of ambiguity. And I think what that leads us to in terms of this issue of change is you cannot reason somebody out of a belief that they were not reasoned into in the first place. You have to understand the emotional roots of where it came from. And in a sense, that's where like the educated intelligentsia in America discovered three years ago where in hell Donald Trump came from, who elected him. It is people who are afraid and angry and peripheral and feel irrelevant and resentful. And this used to be our country before all these people who our grandparents warned us about suddenly started taking over our cultural relevance. And like, you can't reason somebody out of, you have to address what the emotional roots are because that's where we're making most of our decisions from. I thought you were just gonna say you have to beat them. <laughs> that too, please, please. <laughs> um, a very last question to, um, to, to go out on, and, and maybe this can be on a more positive note. What would you say is the most interesting thing about human beings? <sighs> well, um, the societies they could construct, um, 
you guys have a fairly nice one. If you, if you ever spend time around American liberals, you will get so sick of the fact, like if somebody says, wow, great brand of toilet paper you had in the bathroom I just discovered. Where's it from? Did the Scandinavians make it? Like, everything you people do makes wonderful sense compared to where we are. God, if only we can have this like the people in Scandinavia. You guys are so sane. It is so impressive. Like, I know you have problems. I know you probably hate your neighbor and you feel embarrassed to admit that and it's against the law or something to say that. But, like, seeing, you know, how far... I mean, in the 18th century, the Swedes were real assholes. They were awful to, like, you guys and the Russians and the Poles. And look at the Swedes now. And they, look they're at you still awful. Now. What are you are talking they still about? Awful? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, that's right. I'm in Denmark. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, at least they're not awful to, they don't even, well, maybe they still want to steal some incredible tapestry from some castle here and keep it in Stockholm for centuries to come. But, you know, in terms of what's amazing is people can construct extraordinarily different things. I mean, you look at the things that move us, you look at the things that we view as our responsibilities to make sure that people have health care, everyone in a society does, that everyone can get an education, that people deserve housing, things like that. Yeah, that's kind of crazy radical ideas where I come from, but at least there's some places on earth where that's done. And by primate standards, by the standards of us theming a mere thousand years ago or 200 years ago, it is astonishing what humans are capable of in some of those settings. You know, there's some grounds for optimism, so good for you guys. <laughs> Robert Sapolsky, um, it was very nice to meet you and talk to you here at Heartland. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. You have listened to a Heartland podcast. If you like what you just heard, please write us a review on iTunes or even better, tell your friends that you heard this. We would really appreciate it. Thank you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.